value equals benefit divided by risk. Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance Attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the Anti-Kickback Statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law, including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado, I give you Captain Integrity, Bob Wade. Welcome to Stark Integrity, uh, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. My name is Bob Wade, and I am your host. Well, today I'm excited about uh, interviewing Richard Romero. Richard is from the Coker Group, and I'll have Richard introduce himself in a second. But for those listeners that have been uh, listening to other episodes, we've talked a lot about fair market value and commercial reasonableness and especially fair market value in the context of physician compensation. But there's more to Stark Law and anti-kickback statute valuation than just fair market value for compensation for physician financial arrangements. There's also valuation of business and other items. And so Richard and I have known each other for quite a few years. We have co-presented at uh, many conferences together. And uh, he has a nationally recognized practice in the healthcare sector with valuation. And so I'm excited about asking a few questions dealing with valuation. So Richard, why don't you introduce yourself? Thanks, Bob. And I very much appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to chat with you today. I have a part of a teacher, as you know, from serving as an instructor. But um, with Coker Group, just real briefly, we um, provide services in IT compliance, and then finance operations and strategy. Uh, We help a lot with uh, hospital physician affiliations. So that involves work both on the CV side, as we say, the compensation valuation side, as well as the business valuation side. Um, We also get involved in um, litigation support across the board. So um, we often have projects that involve both CV and BV, uh, as we think about today. And as we look at, um, on a broader scale, a lot of those uh, topics or aspects of valuation will overlap. So I think even as we talk about BV, there's some, there's some concepts that will work over CV, but uh, the BV side of valuation is far more established. And so we can talk a little bit about that today foundationally so everybody has a common understanding. Yeah, and again, BV, business valuation, CV is compensation valuation, right? Absolutely. (laughs) Okay. Just talk to me briefly about what is valuation? What's the concept of valuation? Bob, I think that's a great foundational and fundamental question. And ultimately, when you look at valuation, uh, valuation is the pricing of risk. How much are you going to pay for the risk that you're going to take on based on that investment? And so ultimately, no matter what you're valuing, it is the pricing of risk. So I think that's a foundational concept that we want to make sure that we keep in mind. 
So are there particular rules that are generally guide the valuation process? Bob, I, I, my personal opinion is yes. And I think there's four, what I call four universal rules of evaluation. And I think these are important that no matter what the circumstance, these four rules always apply. Um, and one is that value is always a forward-looking concept. Right? It's about the future return that we expect, not necessarily what I earned in the past. That can help us predict uh, or provide guidance to what we think may happen in the future. But value is always about what you're going to get in the future. So it's always a forward-looking concept. And then value is always a mathematical equation. Now, what goes into that equation uh, can change quite a bit, but value is, can always be expressed by the simple equation of value equals benefit divided by risk. So that can be cash flows or, Bob, we actually are valuators every day. Um, what are we going to do? Uh, are we going to go into the office on Saturday and work on that project, or are we going to spend time with the kids, right? And so we do a cost-benefit analysis of the benefit that we have versus the risk for missing out on an event or perhaps our spouse getting mad at us. Um, but we all do that kind of same analysis of that value proposition. So it's always benefit divided by risk. Yeah, and what's interesting in, when you say that, because a lot of times uh, in, the, in arrangements, the physicians will end up saying, well, if you're going to ask me to do X, that's going to take away from my clinical work, like a medical director work. And so they want to say that, well, then the value should be my alternative costs. Uh, that goes into play there. And so I, I guess alternative costs could be considered. It may not rule the day, but it could be considered. Well, and, and Bob, we're, I'm going to roll, roll you back to, to BV because that's a CV question. But right. as you know, we always <laughs> exactly. want to be careful. We always want to be careful about, and, and the government has been very clear about taking into account or using alternative costs as a basis. So you know, there's an economic value to, the, to their time, uh, but using, you know, ultimately using their alternative costs can come with some complications, what I would say there. Yep. So as we think about the benefit and the, and the risk, just to, to tie that off, when we look at it from a business valuation, that benefit can be, it's an increase in cash flow. And that increase in cash flow can come from either an increase in revenue um, or quite frankly, from a decrease in expense. Either one of those net net all else being equal is going to increase your cash flow value goes up. Um, the risk, as we look at those cash flows, are really, um, it's a composite score, as I like to think about it, and that is the risk of receiving the amount that you're projecting in the time that you're expecting, because there's obviously a time value of money. And then, Bob, to back to your point that I think you were making is there's an alternative investment um, that you could be make, which, again, go back to our primary point is I could invest in the subject investment for a given level of risk or in the market, I could take that same level of risk and earn a different amount. So there's always that risk comparison point there. Yep. And sometimes it would be like a physician remaining in private practice versus selling their practice to like a hospital system and cashing out. So it's either I keep my money in play and I can actually generate income off of the ownership of the physician uh, corporation or sell out and, and, and cash out. So dealing with, with purposes in the healthcare sector, why would uh, evaluation occur? Bob, I, I think that there are a myriad of reasons why evaluations occur. I mean, ultimately, you've got simply, simply management planning for individuals, especially physicians. You could have divorce, tax reporting, M&A transactions. Uh, and then a common one is, is regulatory compliance. Right? And, and as we think about all of those, most commonly in healthcare, the, the burden that we all face is that regulatory compliance piece. 
And so I just want to go back and close the loop on one quick thing. So we talked about two of those four rules. Um, value is always forward looking. It's, a, it's an equation of benefit divided by risk. Um, and the third one is always facts and circumstances because it's always based on comparison. So, Bob, attorneys are always saying, you know, the, the famous tagline is it depends. Uh, valuators, it's always based on facts and circumstances, right? Because we're always comparing it to what's known. We're comparing one aspect of known to get to a value where we're comparing the transactions, for example, where both sides of that equation is known in that ratio. Fourth rule that I like to think about is that every valuation can only be based on the information that was known or knowable as of the date of valuation, right? That's a universal rule that we use. And so even if we think about uh, transactions, we see this a lot with regard to litigation is there's a point, well, if we're going back to 19, we're not really impacted by COVID at that point in time. If we've got a, a damages date that's in 20, we've got multiple factors to take into account along those lines. So important point, that's, I think, the two other rules that we just wanted to make sure we, we established there is that it's, it's always based uh, on facts and circumstances because it's based on comparison. And then there's a valuation date that we only consider information that was known or knowable as of that date. Yeah, and I think from a regulatory perspective, I think you'll agree with this concept is that under the Stark Law and the anti-kickback statute, when they talk about valuation, it's the valuation on the date of the transaction. So it's when they're entering into the transaction. Circumstances, like you say, Richard, can change later, but that's not going to impact from a regulatory perspective, the value is determined on the date of transaction. That is correct. You could only take into account what was known or knowable. Um, interesting fact. So Bob, along those let's say you take a practice and uh, you're doing evaluation as of year end, but you know as of year end that you've got a physician that plans that is going to retire, right? You would that was known or knowable, but the impacts are going to occur after the date of valuation. So that was knowable that those events were going to happen. So sometimes you get some things that cross over, but you're absolutely right. It's what's known or knowable as of that date. Yeah, not to be morbid about it, but uh, on the date of the transaction, you would not know that the doctor two months later is going to die, your primary physician. So that would be an unknown factor. <laughs> that ab absolutely, and, and you know, we've done work where we've had a, a shareholder that has passed, and so that is typically a surprise. Yeah. So dealing with the purposes, obviously, there's regulatory purposes. There may be some other purposes of doing evaluation in the healthcare sector. Correct. The most common, I think, is you know those transactions that we're seeing um, that they want a value of, of what is what I'm buying, what is it actually worth. So those are the two most common that we typically see. Okay, but sometimes you can probably get into some litigation, like through a divorce or something like that, where evaluation becomes important. Yeah, and and Bob in those, uh, and that's a great point because in the the litigation scenario, the valuation, you know, the the concept there is evaluation is an imper a permanent impairment you know, based upon the bad act, whereas damages are a temporary piece. And sometimes there's a combination of those. Um, and it, you can use both tools, but litigation is certainly in, uh, where we'll use valuation concepts as well. Okay, Richard, there's also, I think, many ways to view a value of a healthcare entity, like a, a premise of value. Uh, what are those uh, in the valuation world? So, Bob, I think that's the way I like to describe that is, is that's kind of thinking about the condition of the investment, right? And so a premise of value, and in the most common, there's basically two big buckets, right? There's one is a going concern. You expect the entity to continue to perform, uh, to maintain its existence, and, the, and, and to basically continue. 
Um, the other is a liquidation premise. And obviously, as we saw with COVID-19, we saw some businesses um, get hurt pretty substantially. Some disappeared. Uh, and in liquidation, there's orderly enforced, which means one is you've got time to liquidate. The other is your creditors are coming to shut you down. Uh, obviously, the highest value is going to be a going concern. Orderly next and enforced liquidation would be the, the least value for an entity. And under the Stark Law and Anti-Kickback Statute, they always put in the words fair market value. So that's sort of a standard, I guess, a standard of value. Can you describe what uh, fair market value is or if there's any other way to look at value except for fair market value? There's um, a great point, and I think everybody needs to understand this because there's levels of value and then there's definitions of value. So even when we talk about, Bob, even when we talk about fair market value, the definition, um, there are numerous definitions. I mean, the kind of the granddaddy of them all, if we, if we want to say that, is revenue ruling 5960. And for those that are not familiar, the 59 in that means that that ruling was issued in 1959. And it's still considered uh, a Bible by many with regard to business valuation. That was before um, my time. <laughs> Mine as well. Mine as well. The, uh, you've got the International Glossary of Business Valuation Terms, which there's now some um, – not everybody is necessarily agreeing with that, but there's definitions there. Uh, Treasury regulations have that. And, of course, we deal with the Stark Law on a very regular basis. They actually have uh, very different definitions. Now, there's some common concepts across those. Um, we could talk all day about that. We don't have the time, but we could talk all day about that. But when, then we also have the interest level or the, the level of investment. And so fair market value versus, and I'm going to draw the other conclusion because I want to talk about this in a minute, is in, as opposed to strategic or investment value. So, Bob, an easy way to think about this, and I'm going to take it out of healthcare, for example. Let's say there's a flower shop up the street, and you're going to continue your day job. And Bob, all your listeners want you to continue your day job, but you want to own, have an interest in that flower shop. So you would own that and you would pay a fair market value of what a financial investor would pay for an interest in that shop. Okay. And you would get a return over time. It would run well, so forth and so on. Now let's say that there's a national flower shop consolidator that comes in and they have a better, more modern delivery system. They just need access to the customers and locations they will pay more than you as a financial investor because there's a way for them to make more money off of the same assets that you just bought as a quote, financial investor. So there's a strategic or investment value for that purpose. Now, the government's pretty clear that they don't like hospitals buying practices as an investment or strategic value because it implies that you're paying for referrals. So the point there is make sure you understand the purpose of the valuation that we talked about, regulatory compliance being one of those, and that the standard of value, that fair market value that you're using complies with the purpose of the valuation. Yeah, and to make a point here, uh, especially from a, a Stark Law and a kickback statute perspective, it is very important for healthcare organizations to have valuators like Richard uh, who know the healthcare segment because as Richard just indicated, some valuations outside of the healthcare segment, uh, you could apply uh, certain standards, but inside the healthcare sector, it's a totally, not totally different, but there are different standards that need to be applied. Bob, I'll just say this. If, if anybody is wondering an example, they could look at the famous Bradford case, uh, where a probably well-intentioned valuator did not understand the specifics of healthcare. Exactly. So fair market value, uh, what is fair market value then? 
you know, when we talk about fair market value, and, and obviously those of us that are in the industry and even attorneys, they'll, they'll say fair market value, they'll say FMV to, for, for short. And I think when we do that, we can, we can really lose the definition of those words. And I think sometimes it may sound a little silly, um, but if we think about what each of those words mean, it can help us think through the process, right? So fair, um, what is fair given the, the specific facts and circumstances in a market? quick example, and I'll use of a specific asset rather than a business, but take an MRI. You have an MRI test and you do that for a Medicare patient as part of a, just a standard of care. They come in and you're going to get a level of Medicare reimbursement. Do the same test for another patient, uh, same MRI, read the same way, takes the same amount of time, but that patient happens to be part of a clinical research study. The amount of budget that is, done, that is provided for those studies the reimbursement for that may easily be three times or more, uh, and the fees for that will be three times or more. So you have the same asset given the circumstances of what's fair to charge for the exact same test. I'm not talking about pricing. I'm talking about actual reimbursement that you'll get for those tests. So we want to understand is what's fair is based on the facts and circumstances. Um, the market is really understanding your market. Uh, I did a value evaluation of an imaging center. I think this was around 2008. I think this was right around the time where they were changing the utilization assumptions uh, for imaging, for high-dollar imaging equipment. And as we know, the economy was starting to head south. Mm-hmm. Um, there was an individual that had, uh, had he was kind of claustrophobic and wanted to do, develop a center for a stand-up MRI. Thought, saw a problem, wanted to solve it, picked the absolute wrong time to do it. So we had the changes in the reimbursement, and with the economy tanking, there were two large employers in town that were going to supply most of the patients and were going to have commercial insurance. Both of those large plants shut down. What he's left with was reduced reimbursement from Medicare and a dramatic shift from commercial to Medicaid for services. So your business model absolutely tanks from that perspective. So it's important to understand both your market from what's going on in your local market to who are your potential purchasers. From BV, we're always looking at potential purchasers. And then valuation goes right back to our equation of benefit divided by risk. So I think we get a bit to valuation approaches. I've, I've heard these over and over again, but if you can enlighten the listeners as to kind of the valuation approaches uh, that a business valuation would go through. Well, Bob, if we don't mention the various approaches to valuation as evaluator, I think I get kicked out of the club. So <laughs> I'm, I'm responsible for doing that. Um, one thing that I, I want to say, and this is a minor technicality, and if you're uh, at a cocktail party, here's a, here's a nice bit of, of trivia. Cost is not an approach to value a business. Um, We also hear cost, market, and income. When you're valuing a business, it's asset, market, and income. So why does everybody say cost, market, and income? Because asset, that approach is you're basically valuing up all of the individual assets, and you're taking that sum, and that's the value of the business. One of the ways that you value those individual assets is cost, which is valuing those individual assets. So as a shorthand, people say cost, market, and income. On the market approach, what we're doing there is we're taking what's known in the market either from a guideline public company approach, what's sales, you know, what's value of stock in the marketplace, price to earnings, or other transactions that have occurred. And I think it's important that a lot of times we'll use that as a confirmatory opinion, not a primary, because we obviously don't have all of the detailed data that we'd like to have to be able to draw that comparison. So be aware there. And then the income, which is the most common approach in, in, for valuation, 
uh, I think it has the opportunity to be the most accurate. However, the biggest concern that I have with most valuations using the income approach is they fail to take into account capacity constraints, um, whether that be space, people, or equipment. Um, and so it becomes a mathematical calculation versus a representation of the business. So capacity is one of those things that are often under-examined in income approach valuations. Well, I think you and I talked briefly about uh, a capacity issue uh, about the staff of, uh, of an entity. And the staff was a certain size, but they were actually projecting growth in the evaluation. So you get granular in the analysis and try to determine whether or not the valuation has taken into account you know, uh, the, the capacity of the organization, right? Yeah, absolutely, Bob. And I'll just a quick, quick example on that. It was a very large transaction. Uh, firm had done a valuation. It was a very large entity. They had come up with a purchase price of $250 million, high growth. I reviewed the valuation. The growth assumptions made sense because of the market and all of those factors that we talked about. And then when we looked at the actual cost uh, associated with the staff, they had inflated the staff, the assuming cost of living raises, increases over time, but they didn't think about the relationship between the assets that are necessary to drive that growth. Um, and so they didn't add any bodies. And so eventually those same, those same bodies were not going to be able to handle all that increased growth. Just factoring in a minimal level of increase reduced the purchase price by about $25 million. So it's important to understand the relationship between your assets, your capacity, and Bob, to your point, you're making, making sure that you're increasing what's necessary and accounting for those capital assets and or people assets necessary to support that growth. Yeah, and for lawyers out there, this is another point with with respect to valuation, whether or not it's compensation or business, read the report, make sure that you understand what's going into the report. And especially putting my lawyer hat on, can we defend all those components that are in the in the report? It just don't take the report and say, hey, we have a report, therefore we're going to rely on it. We need to get behind the numbers and make sure that we think we can defend it, that, that it's defensible. Just like I, I may have familiarity with this familiarity with the Stark Law, I'm not an attorney and can't practice law. So I'll, I'll literally, I've done this my entire career. If anybody would like have, just to have some questions, please feel free to reach out to me. My email is rromero, R-R-O-M-E-R-O, at cokergroup.com. Glad to help. Yes. And I don't think this is going to be the last time Richard's going to be on Stark Integrity because uh, he's got a wealth of knowledge in this area. So. We typically close uh, Stark Integrity by doing the Captain Integrity three punch points. And so, Richard, uh, can you give us three Captain Integrity punch points about uh, the things we've discussed today? Yeah, so for business valuation, I would say uh, remember the four universal laws of valuation. It's always forward-looking. It's always a forward-looking concept. It's always based upon benefit divided by risk. It's always facts and circumstance specific based on comparison. And every valuation, you have to have a valuation date, only taking into account information as of that date. You've got to understand the standard of value and make sure it applies for the purpose of your value. And again, make sure you understand the capacity constraints of your people or your assets. Um, that, can, that can never be, um, it's, it's often under-examined. Sounds good. I mean, one more, one last time, give everybody your email address, Richard. Certainly, it's R-R-O-M-E-R-O at cokergroup.com. Well, Richard, I'd like to thank you very much for participating today. And for those listeners, uh, just give me your feedback or any questions that you may have. 
And uh, we have, I'm sure that I will have Richard back on, on Stark Integrity sometime in the near future. And thank you, Richard. Thanks, Bob. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at captainintegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity punch points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.